listener production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. I first started talking to today's guest about coming on back in May 2019. We were driving around the Gold Coast at the time in a Mustang on a video content shoot, shooting the breeze as they say. Fabian Coulthard has the same famous surname as former F1 star David Coulthard, his second cousin. Fabs has definitely not ridden the coattails, though, and has walked his own road. He spent nearly two decades now in the supercars paddock and driven some cool cars along the way. He was even teammate for a time in his early days to the great Sir Lewis Hamilton, well before Lewis's seven F1 world titles and the knighthood. You'll enjoy his recollections of that chapter. There have been highs and lows in Fabian's career, and while we cover plenty of miles, we don't tackle everything. This is a conversation. It's not a current affair. Enough has been written about some things, and I kind of sense that he's respectfully drawn a line in the sand about others. I've always maintained this is about our guests. In their own words, we don't really edit the podcasts, and we respect that it is their say. We do, however, in this one, tackle a number of your questions. So to those of you who have sent them in, a big thank you. That's later. I'm at home for this chat. He's in our Gold Coast studio. I wish we were face-to-face for the conversation. Life for Fabs and the Fab Pack began halfway round the world and settled on the other side of the ditch. Born in England, raised in New Zealand, now reside in Australia, so... I'm quite the mixed bag. You know, growing up in New Zealand, um, moved there when moved to New Zealand from England when I was 11 months old. So I regard myself as a Kiwi. Um, but you know, just the, the simple things. You know, like went to school there. You know, always wanted to be a racing driver. Uh, my fifth birthday, um, Dad really wanted to get me into go karts. Mum was not real keen. I wasn't very good with left and right. So I started when I was six. So my sixth birthday, a go kart rocked up, and um, yeah, it's all history from there. You're obsessed, I guess, with cars and racing as a as a kid. Were those early influences uh, from your dad? Because I sense he has a a passion for it. I've always sensed that in him. That bug clearly rubbed off, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I, I guess the best thing, you know, that I look upon, you know, from you know my younger days, that I was I was never pressured. And uh, you know, a go a go kart rocked up, and like I said, you know, there was an opportunity for me then to go go kart racing and. Dad said, look, this is what I always wanted to do. I was never in a position to be able to do it. Um, would you like to do it? And it sort of all progressed from there. It started off from, um, you know, going around a, a Glenfield shopping mall car park on my uh, at like 5 a.m. On, a, on my birthday morning. I ended up crashing into the curb. <laughs> <laughs> so well, a bit of a backstory is my cart rocked up. I was still probably half asleep. I was putting around. And Dad said, look, if you're going to carry on, going that slow, we'll probably sell it, you know. So I was like, okay. So I was just, from then on, pedal to the metal, and it was an oval. And, you know, obviously with speed, you know, you get wider and wider and wider. And I eventually slapped the curb and nearly went through a, uh, you know, an automatic door. So <laughs> from then on, mum's like, oh, you're going to kill our son and, you know, we probably should go to a racetrack next time. And 
you know, the next weekend we went to a racetrack and um, it was myself, Scott Dixon and Jody Vincent. We all started on the same day and fantastic. You know, looking around going, how good's this? I'm, I'm driving a go-kart. Next minute I look up and there's a bank in front of me and I've flipped the card into the bank and mum's definitely very anti us going racing <laughs> from that point. You know, we've got a six-year-old child that's probably not going to see a seventh birthday if he carries on the way he's going. So um, then dad put in a rule. He said, look, you know, I think we're probably getting into this a little bit too deep too quick. And um, he made me do 500 laps of this Mount Wellington go-kart track before I was actually allowed to do a race. And I think it took, you know, four or five weekends to do these 500 laps. A lot of guys, uh, you know, I think Greg Murphy's got an old historic card. Craig Baird's restored one as well. Some of the, some people have actually tracked down their originals. I think um, maybe Scott McLaughlin or, or one of them. What was that first go-kart? What kind of chassis? What became of that cart? It was loud as. I'll never forget that. And it had like this little tea bucket seat. It was uncomfortable as hell. But it was a no-name. It was just a, a home-built, homemade chassis. I think it was five or six hundred bucks from one of dad's mates, um, you know, that lived uh, a little bit further south than us in, um, in Auckland. And yeah, I'd have no idea where it is. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it's what got me started and got me into it. There's success there on the CV in, in karting. When did it kind of click for you from some of those hair-raising moments for your poor mum that you've just rattled off there? But when when did it become natural that you were you would go fast and, and this was what you wanted to do? Well, I think mainly, you know, it, it starts off as a hobby. You get a little bit of success and it progresses from there. And, you know, it was it was always fun. I always enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, I continue to enjoy it to this day. But um, for it to switch over from, you know, a hobby and then, you know, to progress on to other, other categories, I guess, it's sort of the next rung on the ladder. You never really know if you're going to become a professional at it. Um, you know, that's definitely the dream to become a professional racing driver, but um, will it happen? You have some success in go-karts, you win go-kart championships, um, you move up through the ranks, you continue to win and and then you you progress that way and you get to a point where you've done everything you can achieve in go-karts and, you know, the next step was I did a Formula V scholarship when I was 12. Um, I practiced to drive in mum's RX, manual RX-7 Um Around the local sporting complex, Dad taught me how to do a start just in case I needed it on the on the initiation process, and and then yeah, so I finished second in in the uh, Formula V scholarship and won the sh- the Formula Ford scholarship, you know, a, a year later, and then yeah, progressed on to racing Formula Ford. So you have success in that, and then so on and so forth. So yeah, it's obviously it's an expensive sport. Um, you know, you have to have support and. You know, I never really applied myself in any other sport away from go-karting. Um, I didn't feel like it was right on the team to to do all the training and, you know, do all the lead up and then be away on the weekends. It was, you know, letting a team down. So, you know, my sole focus was um, go-karts and, and that was it. Did that mean that teachers every once in a while had to say, hey, you know, Fabs, you've got to pick up your grades here? And and the, and, and, and the background too, mate, we probably should shed a little bit of light on that. I think your mum was a hairdresser, wasn't she? And what, what, what did your dad do? It was it, We should, you know, make clear it was very sort of humble beginnings. It wasn't like an open checkbook, was it? Far from it. So, yeah, my mum was a uh, uh, eventually a hairdresser from home. You know, she used to have a, a, a hairdressing salon in the city and then and brought it to home. I used to remember... Being in my pram while mum was cutting hair um, at the at the salon, and you know, everyone, I was quite a big kid. I've been a big kid, tall kid since I was you know knee high to a grasshopper, and they'd always ask me, you know, why aren't you at school? And I'm like, well, I'm only four. 
you know, I was hanging out with mum, watching her cut hair and things like that. And dad was a toolmaker by trade. So he, um, he was always in the garage, you know, working on go-karts, working on engines and things like that. And then, you know, when he wasn't at home, he was at work. So definitely haven't come from, um, you know, a lot of financial backing. It's been, you know, it's been a tough old slog, but you know, we've, we've been able to create this family sport, um, you know, do it, as, do it as a family and, um, you know, I guess live the dream through me, so to speak. You've mentioned the RX-7 that you got to do a little bit of learning on there. What what model RX-7 was that? And what was your, what was your first car? Did Fabian Coulthard get his licence first go? I was, uh, it was a Series 1 RX-7. I learned to drive in that when I was, you know, 12 or 13. Um, mum might have come to a school camp and I might have been doing some circle work in the car park, but <laughs> the story for another day. But uh, I was king of the kids back then. Um, but yeah, and then uh, for me, I uh, got my licence when I was 15. Uh, learner's license, typical, you know, racing driver fashion, you know it all, you don't need to study. And it was multi-choice and I failed. I was devastated. <laughs> I didn't have enough dignity to go back for probably another six months, which kind of worked in my favour. Because all my mates had my li- had their license and they took me everywhere, so it was <laughs> so I was yeah. like chauffeur driven around everywhere. Couldn't drive anyone, um, and then yeah, I went back, got my license, got my restricted license. I got in trouble for not having two hands on the steering wheel. I had one on the gear stick, one on the steering wheel, so I got a slap over the wrist for that. Would it be fair to say then that a significant step in that journey was winning the 0102 New Zealand Formula Ford title and then you'd go to Australian race at the Grand Prix, for example. Is this the point where um, you're starting to think, okay, from a career standpoint, that's my sole objective? Oh, 100%. And, uh, you know, for, for us, you know, our championship run over Christmas. So it was a distraction, so to speak, to come away and, and race at the Australian Grand Prix and Formula Ford. But um, you know, I think that was, it was an instrumental part to me, you know, first of all, getting my name out there in Australia, hmm. you know, winning two of the three races. Um, and then also from a financial standpoint and backing and support to then getting me to, to the next part of my career. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was just all about winning the Alan Jones trophy. No one had won it outside of Australia and I'm the first and only person to do so. So that's, you know, a pretty cool stat in itself, but you know, a key moment was me sitting on the starting grid on that last race um, at the Grand Prix. And, you know, there was a gentleman, you know, that went over the pit wall at Formula One and just sort of hung his head out and, uh, you know, waved to me. And I was like, that's weird, but, you know, I'll do the right thing and wave back and thought nothing of it. And then uh, went on and, and won that race and, Afterwards, the same guy come up to me and he goes, well, you don't r- probably know me or recognize me, but, um, you know, that was a test. And I'm like, you know, a test for what? And he's like, well, I want to, you know, get in behind and support someone and, you know, being New Zealander, I'm a New Zealander and, you know, I want to be able to be instrumental in this person's career to get them to the next the next part. And, um, you know, like we touched on earlier, I didn't come from a wealthy family, so I needed all the support I could get to, um, you know, go to England and progress and, yeah, so that was a pretty unique experience, you know, pretty unbelievable that, you know, it, it stemmed from a wave. Yeah, it's it's all um, it's all history, but uh, yeah, you know, I still speak to this person, um, you know, weekly and, you know, he's it's, it's played a huge part of my career. Do you want to share their name while we're here? I prefer not to. Okay. You know, sure. he's kind of been a silent guy that's been there in the background and, you know, looked yeah. after me, um, you know, throughout my career and it's probably something I've never really touched on, so... Yeah, it's special to me. It's special to my family. And, you know, you know, without this person, I wouldn't be where I am today. 
I love the fact that you brought up the Alan Jones Trophy too, mate. Before we we move on here, I got to share um, the desk with him in a broadcasting sense, covering Formula One for many years. I mean, 1980 world champion. He was a he was a tough guy. You know, to significantly win that at Albert Park. That's a that's I would imagine a very cool one in the in the trophies you've got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that's back in New Zealand. Yeah, it was, it's a cool trophy, and you know, Albert Park's been one of those tracks that's been very kind to me. You know, big Carrera Cup. You know, supercars, Formula Ford. So. Um, yeah, to have my name, uh, you know, against that trophy is, um, you know, pretty special. The international chapter is the focus and it, it sort of beckons at this point, but it, just in joining some dots here, Fabs, d- did you sample a supercar around this point? I think you flew with Larry Perkins and Russell Ingle to Winton somewhere about this point. Is that right? And what are your recollections of that? Yeah, that's 100% correct. Um, you know, it was the uh, Castro Commodore um, and, you know, uh, LP said, look, you know, I've got a test day at Winton. Um, Russell's coming along. I want you to come along. So I got picked up in, in the plane. I think I met at Moorabbin and then we got collected from the airfield and, and taken to the racetrack. So it was my first ever time in a supercar. It was uh, a fair culture shock for me, you know, coming out of Formula Ford where the visibility is amazing. Um, you hop in a supercar where it's quite closed in. Um, you had the Larry bar at that time. So the visibility, you're always trying to look around this bar that's, you know, completely in front of you. But I think the biggest thing that surprised me was how sensitive the throttle was, you know, how quickly the engine would rev, you know, with the, how light the flywheels and things like that were. Um, but yeah, it's just super responsive. You know, you've come out of a 1600 Formula Ford into a, you know, a V8 five litre supercar, which is, you know, it's, a, it's an animal compared to what I'm used to. Yeah. But yeah, it was a great experience. You know, um, Larry was pretty keen to to sign me up and to, you know, to do something moving forward. But um, I said to Larry, I says, my dream, unfortunately at the moment, it's not supercars. And, you know, I've, I was at the point where I was negotiating deals to go to England to race Formula Renault. And, you know, that was primarily my focus because my childhood dream was always to race in Formula One, which, um, so I wanted to at least go and have a try, uh, try my luck at, um, you know, potentially, you know, having a crack and and, and fulfilling that dream. But, I think if I was to, you know, just commit and say, yep, I'm happy with supercars, I would always be wondering and thinking, what if? Yeah. I flew off to England. Um, I think I was 17 at the time and it was uh, the next step. At the time, you know, coming out of Formula Ford, you know, we didn't have a wings and slicks category to to practice, I guess, so to speak, when you're, um, you, you're going over to try and, you know, cut your teeth against the best over in Europe. Um, so that's probably one thing that's made my journey a little bit tougher. Um, yeah, they had Formula Holden at the time, but that wasn't something that I had sunk my teeth in yet. Um, so, yeah, it's just uh, one of those things. I reckon Larry would have respected that too, mate, knowing what he'd done overseas himself in, in single-seaters and so on. He, he tended to seek out people that had a bit of that bit of that background, you know, that wanted to, to do that. Um, this was a significant step up in budget terms too, mate. I mean, you talked about your teenage years and living away from home and, and things like that. And the, the New Zealand dollar to, to pounds back then would have probably been like three to one or something, I think you said recently. Is that is that what, it, and what was the budget like to go and pursue this? Give or take, you know, sort of 150, 145,000 pounds. Um, so it was sort of fundraising close to a million dollars to uh, to go and race over in England and, you know, we weighed up both options and, you know, there was the option to go via America. But I thought that, you know, well, I thought that was a harder way to get to Formula One. You never really saw many people come from 
IndyCar and get to Formula One or Indy Lights and go to Formula One. They would always go Formula Renault F3 or F3 to F1. And we that's why I chose to go, you know, that path. It's probably a tougher route to go that way. You know, obviously there's, when you're racing people from England, you know, their parents or their family earns the pound. So, you know, 145,000 pounds, don't get me wrong, is a lot of money. When our New Zealand dollar was so poor to go over there and try and fundraise that amount of money is hard work and um, and it's a lot of money. So yeah, it's just the way it goes. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I went over and raced in, in Europe and did what I did and achieved what I achieved because I felt like I learned a lot. Um, you know, the overall outcome, I feel like I've had a, if I had another year, then, you know, life could probably be a little bit different. But, you know, at the time, that's the things you evaluate. We, we, we said we get to a point, we draw a line in the sand if it's heading in the right direction. Yes. And then if not, then you know, we shut it down and come home. So we did the latter. And then, yeah, we uh, got an opportunity to drive for Greg Murphy Racing. And um, I'm sure that's the, the next chapter. Before we go there, can we just touch on a couple of little things? Manor, Manor Motorsport, you are teammate to Lewis Hamilton, now one of the greatest of all time, seven-time F1 world champion, 100 wins. When did you guys first meet? And was it immediately clear to you that he was special or was it just a, a, a another sort of mate trying to make his way? Um, I think definitely he was how – how do you put it? You He was definitely had his – um, career mapped out. Yes, it was mapped out, but he still had to perform. So it's not like it's just been handed to him. He's had to earn it. And, uh, you know, there was a time there where, you know, it was sort of GP2 where he sort of went against the grain a little bit and still got to got to Formula One. And that was, you know, his call. And, you know, it turned out to be the right one. Um, so, you know, he's been very fortunate in being successful. You know, he's delivered when he's needed to deliver. And, yeah, Lewis was he's a freak, you know, and I think you can see from the performance that he's had and everything he's ever driven that, you know, he's naturally gifted. And, um, you know, he's he was a great bloke back then. You know, we used to hang out all the time, obviously, because we we're teammates. He picked me up in his um, silver Mini Cooper with 50 cent in the club cranking. <laughs> you know, he was, just a, he was just a mate. Obviously, things have changed since then. You know, I'm on the other side of the world. It's, you know, tough to... Um, keep in contact and, you know, he's on the road so much and things like that. So we, ha- I haven't, you know, I'll be honest, I haven't kept in contact, but, you know, those odd times that he's at the Grand Prix and things like that, we've crossed paths and, you know, we've had a little bit of time to to catch up. But, um, yeah, his schedule's manic. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I say, I haven't caught up as much as I probably would have liked, but, you know, he's a busy man. He, you obviously got to drive and race at some, you know, some famous British tracks. And while you're walking this path, Fabs, were there – Aussie or, or Kiwi mentors that had perhaps tried to do this or done it before you that were offering some advice, maybe even just in a in a little mentoring way? That's years ago now. I'd have to really mm. rack my brain. But, you know, there was, um, you know, some familiar names I'd raced. Marcus Marshall, um, Will was there, uh, Will Davison, um, JC was over there with um, Racing Formula 3. So there was names and people that I'd associated with in the past which were over there, which... You know, it's like anything, you kind of keep your network going that way and gravitate to people that you know. And, um, you know, I saw Will a little bit, um, Marcus a little bit. Didn't see JC too much, but, you know, if I saw him at the track, we'd say day. but that was sort of the level um, there. But to go on and to to do there, to, to race there and things like that was um, a lot of fun. But I wouldn't say there was, 
you know, someone that mentored me while I was there or, or I okay. looked up to or anything like that. I think you just gravitate to the local names that you know. What about the favourite British track, the one that you still think about now and go, yeah, right, I, I really enjoyed driving around that place. And tell us a little bit about the Formula Renault too. They were a pretty cool thing. Two litre, was it a, a, a Tata chassis, two litre power plant, things like that? Yeah, 100%. So um, it was probably overtired for the level of grip you had. So you had to be very smooth. Obviously, similar to, you know, like a Carrera Cup type setup where all the cars are very similar uh, and it comes down to, you know, setup, understanding and driving ability. Um, Qualifying's you know, massively important like it is at any any form of um, in racing. Uh, the car itself wasn't amazing, but it wasn't terrible. You know, it was a mm. little bit unique to drive, um, but a lot of fun, you know, an open wheeler, wings and slicks. It was a little bit tough in the first part as... You know, the faster you go, the more grip you have. You try and tell your brain that, you know, if you hold it flat for longer, it's going to be better. You know, you just have to overcome that in the in the early days. But other than that, it's um, it was a good series. I really enjoyed being over there. You know, I had great teammates, you know, Paul DeResta, Lewis, uh, Sergio Jimenez from Brazil. There's, there's lots of cool things that we were able to talk about. You know, you eat, sleep and breathe racing when you're over there. Um, very similar to what you do now, but... Um, yeah, it's all all good fun. Chad Nalon, my colleague, did a really cool vid with you recently that that I love, mate. Um, for supercars, you've touched on it a little bit here. Was the you know the difficult decision when it came to a point where you you perhaps just couldn't keep tipping or throwing money at it? How difficult was that to to call time and change tact on the on the grand plan, the dream? It's tough because as a driver, you always have an element of self belief that you you can do it, you can get there. So it was it was hard. Um, but, you know, I hate to use this word, but the fallback plan was always supercars. You know, I always knew that there would be a, a position or an opportunity for me to then, you know, still become a professional driver. Yeah, it might not have been my chosen profession. Um, but when you get to the point and you've drawn that line in the sand and you say, no, my focus is now not this, it's now supercars, then I think your mentality changes. And mm. um, we reevaluated how we were going to get to supercars from you know, coming back from England and, you know, there was a driver evaluation day at Greg Murphy Racing at Winton and, um, you know, I ended up winning that and, and that gave me an opportunity to race Carrera Cup and, you know, no better person to drive for than Greg. Greg was always, you know, older, the, older than me and, and slightly different classes but always had a huge amount of success and obviously he went on to, you know, drive for HRT in the glory days with, you know, you know the mobile, mobile one backed, you know, Commodores and, you know, that was something that I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, I could see myself yeah. doing that. But I needed to get to that point and the switch needed to be flicked that, yeah, I'm not doing that dream anymore. My focus has now changed to supercars. And, yeah, so I said we evaluated Carrera Cup or the development series or Conica or whatever it was called at the time, now Super 2. But it didn't race at all the tracks. And, you know, I hadn't done any other racing apart from the Grand Prix in Formula Ford. So I needed an opportunity to learn the tracks, but also showcase what I could do in a Carrera Cup car to then be recognized or noticed to then um, drive supercars. So the first mm. year, um, I finished third, won the Rookie of the Year, the Drive to Europe, um, which gave me an opportunity to race Super Cup at Silverstone um, next to Peter Dumbreck in the other VIP car. And then um, I won the championship the following year. And another funny little story how that came about is Sarah Mae Wines was on the bonnet of the Carrera Cup car 
which sponsored Alan Gurr, which is obviously Paul Morris, Terry Morris. Um, and after winning the Career Cup Championship in 2005, I think it was like the 12th of December or something that year, um, Paul says, I want you to come and test my supercar. So I tested the supercar with um, with Paul and, you know, he was happy with what I did and, you know, offered me something, you know, that night and said, look, you know, can we um, come to an agreement or do a deal and and uh, you race, you know, a supercar for me. But, you know, the that whole program changed a little bit because we were going to do development series, two cars, me and Alan Gurr, then swapped on the, like, really close to the start of the year. And he says, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. You and Alan are going to share a car. And I think this was in, obviously in 2006. So Alan would do a round. I'd be Alan's tyre guy. And then... Alan would be my tyre guy, then I would do a round. And it sort of just swung in roundabouts, you know, alternate rounds and things like that. So it was probably a good way of doing it because we got the best experience we could against all the current supercar guys. And, um, yeah, that's sort of how my supercar's career kicked off. If I'm ever stuck for hours doing laps around a shopping centre looking for a car park, I'll just say I'm practising like Fabian did when he was a kid. Your first Bathurst 1000, if I'm not wrong, just just correct me if I'm here, was actually with the late Jace Richards at at Tasman in 04, is that right? And did that really, you know, to go to the great race and, and, you know, even for Kiwis that grow up um, on the other side of the ditch, I mean, it's, it's still a huge thing over there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that was, um, you know, a moment in my career that, you know, JR was always, you know, a, an idol of mine. You know, when we went to the race in New Zealand called the Sunbelts, we'd go and stay with Jason. And if he ever come to Auckland, he'd come and stay with us. So to drive with um, JR at Bathurst was, you know, it was a dream come true for me. Um, I was fortunate enough at Tasman Motorsport to do a round before Bathurst at Oran Park in 2004 to give me a bit of a insight to what it's like. Um, we did the Sandown 500, then you know you got the opportunity to do Bathurst after that, and it was the Inner Circle Rum Car. You know, um, yeah, it was. You know, it's pretty surreal to be racing with your mate. You know, around Bathurst. Ironically, a year later, you'd pair up with Tony Delberto for the first time. Good partnership um, that that kind of. Um, got cemented later on. Now, I have, he's been very good to me with a little bit of dirt for our chat here. He says, you have incredible eye for detail that I've noticed before anyway. And he recalls a story uh, later in your time working together regarding colour-coded lap belts. And his needed to be a different size to yours to fit his little seat insert and so on. And I think he tried to change it up one year and you knew straight away that it had changed. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I have pretty good uh, OCD and attention to detail and he did try it on. He also was a bandit to try and move my throttle pedal. <laughs> In what way? In what way? Probably closer to him to suit him better. <laughs> Straight away I noticed that as well and he's like, man, I can't get anything past you. So yeah. hopefully he has a bit more luck with Anton now. So they're yeah. a similar height. So, um, But, yeah, it was ironic that, you know, both TD and I, um, you know, did our – Bathurst together. That was in Jamie's car um, when he was at Tasman Motorsport because that was when you're able to pair your two main drivers in 2005. And then me and TD took over Jamie's car. And um, 
yeah, ironic that, you know, many years later we'd do so yeah. many years together. I think we did five years together at um, DJR Team Penske and, um, yeah, if I had my way, I would have had him again this year. T- TD says you don't drink a lot in your stints either. And he's a bit the opposite, I think, isn't he? Did you... Did, did something happen? I mean, he he might he may have caused it to leak or something on one occasion. It went all over you. Is that is that when you hated that? One occasion, every time he hopped in it. The way it works, <laughs> I, I prefer to drink out of the car. I don't like that swishing around water feeling. You know, when you're turning corners, you can feel the water moving in your stomach. Yes. Whereas yeah. TD, I, I carry it around for ballast, where TD actually uses it and drinks it. But I think the moment TD pushes the drink button, um, it undoes the dry breaks and then it just continuously drips and leaks all over me. So that's something I've got used to. I used to complain about it a lot, but um, yeah. Cool. I want to tap back into what you're talking about with Paul Morris uh, now, if, if I may, and, and that is the hands-on period. I mean, he's kind of big on that even still now with the you know the whole Norwell driver training thing. Were you any good on the tools and how was that when you and Alan were sort of sharing roles? Yeah, well, Alan was the sticker guy. He was the sign writer at, um, at uh, PMM, Paul Morris Motorsport yep. at the time. Um, and he sort of coached me how to become the sticker guy. So on a daily basis, we were doing stickers at the workshop. Yep. So if either... Alan scratched it or I scratched it or if Paul scratched it, we'd just redo the stickers and we'd be all good and we're good to go again. But um, on the tyre pressure gauge, I think it was good for us to get an understanding of tyre pressures, how the tyres worked um, and things like that. It's a it's an art, you know, like you yes. see a lot of tyre pressure guys up and down pit lane running around, you know, getting the, the actual perfect amount of bleed and everything like that and checking the pressures when they're hot and you know, prior to that, you don't really understand what's involved in being a tyre guy. It's not just mm. put air in the tyres and forget about it. It's all about the ambient of the day and, you know, how much it warms up, how much you bleed out of your base set and things like that, which, you know, it taught me a hell of a lot and, um, you know, probably information I wouldn't have had in the past prior to working for Paul. So it was good. It was a good balance. Did you ever worry, mate, that it... it- mightn't pan out at this stage when you're quite hands-on and you're having to do these things and maybe there were other jobs you were doing too to keep keep the money topped up and, and so on but was there ever a point where you thought you know far out I might need to go and study to be a surveyor or an electrician or something or other or was it only you only ever had your eyes on the steering wheel and, and racing? No I only ever had my eyes focused on the steering wheel and racing but it was my mum and dad that pushed me prior to going to Europe um, to say Basically, this is not a given, you know, like there's potential Mm. that you can go over there and come back and you'll have absolutely nothing to fall back on. So I've started a a marine cabinet making apprenticeship on luxury super yachts at Alloy Yachts. Wow. So um, anything over 100 foot uh, was the boats that I was working on. So um, I used to love anything hands on at school, you know, metalwork, woodwork, anything like that. So I've done two of the four years and, you know, thankfully I haven't had to go back and rely on that skill set. You know, my dreams panned out and I have become a professional racing driver. So, yeah, but they, my mum and my dad and I, I'm very thankful that they, you know, pushed me to do that because there is the opportunity that, you know, I, it may not have panned out and, um, mm. you know, I'm, I'm thankful that it has. Some of those skills, mate, I, I know you and your partner, Becky, have been doing a, a place up at Noosa and so on. I've seen you covered in dust and, and so on. Has, has that 
has a little bit of that actually helped and it's probably been a good distraction at times during this whole COVID period, has it? You know, it's it's been good to be able to, you know, sort of keep your mind fresh, keep it ticking over and, and you know, being able to do things. I wasn't overly hands-on, like I wasn't swinging off um, saws or anything like that, but, you know, nothing's ever perfect. So after the job's complete and I need to make things perfect, that's when I start to swing off the tools and, and make things right. But, um, you know, we've had some great people involved um, to help us with that project and, um, you know, we're very thankful for everyone that's um, been part of that project to, to convert it into what it is now. It's, um, it's an amazing space and, uh, you know, Beck's credit, um, she's done an amazing job and, uh, you know, she's so invigorated and so um, into that style of work. You know, she's been finishing her construction management degree, a new company called By Bronte Projects, which um, is going to go into that sort of building space, renovation space um, to then, you know, be able to, you know, showcase more of what we were able to achieve um, with the loft up in Noosa. People can find, I'm glad you mentioned the name too, The Loft, and some of the socials that she's done uh, around it, the tours and so on are uh, terrific. Let's um, move now to Paul Crookshank for this part of the, the podcast and working with him. He spoke super highly of you, mate, when I caught up with him for a bit of research. He said you were a great fit for his operation in that period post Paul Morris Motorsport. It is an overused saying, Fabs, but you guys really, for what you had and the emergence of his operation at that stage and so on, you punched above your weight, mate, didn't you? Yeah, well, I had actually had a contract with Paul um, for that year, but then Russ Ungle turned up with super cheap money or cash draw money, I forget what it was at the time, and flung me out of my seat. So I had um, great equipment, um, you know, triple eight equipment, and probably had a lot more success than people probably expected. You know, I remember quite vividly my first podium at um, uh, Tasmania, another track that's been kind to me. You know, that was back in 2009 and um, back on the soft tyre when it was properly soft. Everyone that's played their part in my supercars career um, should be very proud to um, what they've done and played their part to getting me to where I am today. I reckon even in 2008 there, there were maybe four or five single car operations on, on the grid and you guys did something like chalking up double the points of the second best single car outfit. And there was a Bathurst top 10 shootout appearance there too, mate, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. That was uh, me and Alex Davison that year. I think if you poke Paul enough, he'd say that's probably one of the best races or, you know, best weekends we'd had as a team. He had a soft spot for Alex. And, um, you know, I think that we were probably his favourite driver pairing that he's had. So, yeah, look, it was great to be in the shootout and obviously being a small team, you know, you get two and a half minutes of, you know, pure coverage at prime time um, for Paul Crookshank Racing. And, um, yeah, it's good just to be able to showcase what you can do in, uh, in a mm. small team. He was happy to, to give me a little bit of fodder for the chat, mate, because he always said he felt like he had unfinished business with you. The career moves to a stint with effectively the Walkinshaw stable. Lots of fans have asked via social media uh, again about – the crash, the rollover at the chase, which has been played ad nauseum, I, I know. Um, uh, mate, has, has it been the kind of thing over time where you've thought about something a little bit extra or, or um, is there a different take or twist on it now with all these years that have passed since then? Um, ah, the, the most vivid thing for me is, um, you know, how, how airy and how deathly silent it was when I hopped out and... You know, I thought it felt like a test day, you know, like it felt like there was no one there. 
you know, just I'm just there by myself. I've just had this monumental crash. Um, and no one's seen it. I hopped out and I was like, it took me a while to get out because as I'd unplugged my radio, I heard Rob Starr, my engineer, talk to me. I probably should have said to him, look, hey, mate, I'm all right. But I was just interested in getting out of this car that's, you know, a complete mess. And I knew it was a big shunt because I didn't have to open the door to get out. And then my next train of thought is, I've just survived this massive crash. What happens if I trip over in the gravel when I hop out? I'll look like a right flog. <laughs> so I'm like, I've got out ginger and I'm you know, feeling my way around. And, and then all of a sudden I hear this massive roar. And obviously there is people there. You know, The people mm. are there. They've supported the race. And it's happened on lap one. So everyone's sort of still coherent at this point. And um, they've just witnessed, you know, probably one of the biggest crashes Bathurst ever going to see at one of the fastest corners of, um, well, the fastest corner of Australian motorsport. So, you know, I'm just thankful that the car was, you know, built correctly. You know, the guys at Walkinshaw Racing had done an amazing job. You know, very thankful for all the safety gear that we wear to be able to, you know, be here to talk and, and tell the tale. But, um, yeah, the moment the car started to rotate at 288 kilometers an hour, I'm like, I've got this. I can save this as a nat- as a driver. You think naturally I'm going to fight it to death because it's not over till it's over. And and then obviously where it was headed towards the gravel and you know that little bit of grass that you know sort of tripped the car over. You know it was inevitable that it was going to dig in and roll over at some point. Just um, I didn't know when and for how long. And I think from when the car started to rotate to it come to a complete rest um, by itself was 11 seconds. And can assure you, it felt like a hell of a lot longer than 11 seconds. But um, I was always concerned, you know, when it's going to finish or when is it going to slowly, you know, dissipate the speed or am I going to hit anything hard? Because albeit my crash was very spectacular, it came to rest by itself. You know, you only need to think and look back at, you know, Chaz's crash at Bathurst. The other one that springs to mind is Lee Holdsworth's one, Holdsworth's crash at Darwin where, Chaz was just very spectacular. Obviously, the car had a sudden deacceleration, which is when all your body organs and everything with inertia keep going. And that's where mm. Chaz's was very violent. All his body kept going because, you know, all of a sudden the car's changed angle and is going a different way. So mm. his was pretty extreme. Um, but you looked at Lee's crash at, at Darwin and doesn't necessarily have to be the biggest crash to do the most damage. It's understandable, mate, that it is etched like film in your mind. That's over. That's over ten years ago. But your recount of it then is is very vivid. Is that you know imprinted like that for you? Um, I think it's imprinted in the sense that everywhere I go, I talk about it. So there's been things that you know people have said or I've remembered or anything like that um, that makes I wouldn't say the story, but you know my recollection of it, you know, very good. But um, you know, me and Scotty Mack used to have jokes, um, you know, every time we got to Bathurst, who's going to be flat through the chase the quickest, lap one, lap two, out lap. So it doesn't affect me anymore. I think the biggest time it affected me was probably going back to Bathurst the first time. When I'm driving around there now, it's not something I think of. You know, it's, um, the best thing for me was probably just going to the Gold Coast race two weeks later, going to a concrete canyon, which I think is, you know, a, a much tougher race than Bathurst in a sense of, you know, having to be accurate and things like that. I think that was probably the best thing for me is to get back on the horse, so to speak, and, and continue to drive. That's 
That's the end of part one of my podcast with supercars driver Fabian Coulthard. What a fascinating insight into that massive Bathurst crash. If you're keen to hit the gas on part two, it is there in the Rusty's Garage Library, ready for a start right now. Your questions, Team Sydney driving for Brad Jones and the automotive icon Roger Penske, plus the race that is still on his bucket list. Listener.